No Griffin Peters. He's attending to his mother's birthday wishes, and so he will not be joining us. So it's just Peyton and myself. Um, we are joined later on in the show by Carson Breber, uh, co-host of Nerd Sesh, one of the fab freshmen from this past uh, fall and abbreviated spring, to talk NBA draft prospects. But first, let's talk the news in college basketball maker maker a couple nights ago announcing that he was going to attend Howard over UCLA, Kentucky. And I think the fourth school was Memphis, if I'm not wrong. So Peyton kind of big news. We, in the previous week, we were talking about Imani Bates going to Michigan state over uh, two years before he was set to even attend college already announcing it. Now we've got maker maker, becoming one of the first prospects to commit to an HBCU. What do you think that means for the sport? Well, there's a rich athletic tradition with HBCUs, even if it's going back to Ed Tutal Jones and what he did at Tennessee State. Um, being the number one overall pick from an HBCU, Deacon Jones, like all these great NFL Hall of Fame guys, came from Willis Reed, even went to an HBCU, and that's kind of started to disperse. These programs are leaving these traditional, like the MEAC is dissolving to play major college athletics. And that is with his benefits and drawbacks. And one of the benefits of a team like a North Carolina A&T joining a major conference, like a Howard leaving their conference to join these major con- conferences is it makes it more realistic to get these players because with that, comes more money from these TV deals that the conferences strike up, more ability to build facilities to accommodate these players. But I don't think ultimately a school like Howard's going to be able to recruit the same way as a Kentucky is. This was an ethical decision, a moral decision, a stand that Maker Maker wanted to take. You know, Gabe, you and I both had William C. Roden, a writer for the Undefeated, a, a very accomplished columnist who's wrote, written for the New York Times, so on and so forth. He wrote a book called 40 million dollar slaves that talks about this idea of black athletes making a conscious choice to go to these HBCUs and how they could reclaim the college athletic sphere because it's mainly populated, at least in the major money-making sports, football and basketball by black athletes and maker maker took a step towards that. It's a very empowering decision for black college athletes. Now I don't think it's going to be mainstream by any stretch. It's a little bit different than if um, I don't know, Jalen green, had decided to go to Howard. Maker Maker is a good player. He is not the kind of Zion-level phenom that it would really take to create change. But it's a start. And Mikey Williams very well could be that Zion-level phenom. He's talked about going to an HBCU. And then when Maker Maker says, I'm doing this to pave the way, Mikey, you're coming after me. And Mikey's like eyes emoji on Twitter I think it's the start of something, and I think it's not necessarily – there's no way you can paint it as a bad thing for college athletics. There's no way you can paint it as a bad thing for just equality and civil rights and putting these black institutions on a national map more so than they already are. Um, Maker Maker just became a 
billboard for black empowerment. And I don't think anybody can view that as a bad thing. Yeah, I think um, it's not really the decision that I was expecting. I think that most anybody. people thought most people thought that like it came down to Howard and UCLA really is is according to all the reporting that's been done. Um, so it's not, I guess in that extent, it's not a surprise, but still it kind of felt like, like even for us, something that's close to us, Josh Christopher committed ASU at the end, everybody thought it was down in Michigan and ASU. He used an unofficial visit, uh, an official on Howard, an official, uh, he, visit. Official, sorry, he used an official visit on to go to Howard, just like maker maker. And he talked about it. His dad talked about um, just like the experience that that visit was and what it would have taught him and all that kind of stuff for Josh. But it doesn't really ever seem like uh, Gup really thought about it, like really seriously considered it. And for Maker Maker to do it, like Howard's head coach, uh, Kenny Blakeney, he was quoted in the ESPN article that I'm reading, that I read, uh, he said, quote, I don't waste my time pursuing these kids and only and only do it so that they can get their numbers up with social media and get in the conversation on a hot button issue. I want someone that wants to be at Howard and understands what Howard is. So it seems to me like for a long time, most of these coaches didn't ever like they, it seemed like it was just like fake flirting by all these top recruits and Maker Maker is like the first kid that's really ever done it. I think it'll be interesting to see whether Mikey Williams wants to do it again. Mm. And a lot of it is going to come down to how successful uh, Maker is with this because Blakeney also said, um, let me find the quote. He said, wherever a five-star lands, we can't mess it up. If we mess it up, we may not have another opportunity to be able to do it. So that's where I ask you, what do you think is considered a success for Howard and for Maker? Well, it's interesting. So, okay. He's going to come into, I, I don't know. I, Howard's still in the MEAC. I think they were discussing potentially leaving. Um, I know that North Carolina A&T has left that conference and North Carolina Central, I believe, is, if they haven't already, and don't quote me on this, I think they are considering it. That's what's interesting about this to me, because Howard is not a basketball program. It is the prototypical on a national scale, I think, regarded at least from one white guy to another white guy. And I've worked with people from HBCUs to create projects, and I do have a fair share of knowledge about this. But from just the uninformed, if somebody thinks of an HBCU, they think of Howard, right? Well, they're one of the main ones that I would probably be able to name. So it's interesting because Howard basketball is nothing too impressive. They've been to the tournament twice, haven't been in 28 years. Um not one in terms of college basketball, you think from the HBCU conferences, especially lately, North Carolina Central has been the best one, correct? Yeah, and they're not, it's not like he went to a basketball school in one of these conferences, he went to Howard to make a statement because Howard's the one with the most name recognition, it's the one with the most history as an HBCU. Um, I think that's what this is about. 
you asked a question that had nothing to do with what I just said of whether or not this would be a success or a failure. It's already a success. The fact yeah, that well, it, it is, it, it's, it's a success in the sense that it's historically something that hasn't really happened since the seventies. And I don't think, you know, a tournament berth would be nice. A tournament win would be even better, especially for a school that's won one tournament game in their school's history. And that was 40 years ago. But Ultimately, just the fact that if he gets a chance to play here, that Howard is going to get to play on national TV at some point this year is a win. It's a billboard for the school. It shows other kids that they can go to these schools, these historically black colleges and universities, and play for their programs instead of propping up. And again, this is not me trying to sail institutions like Kentucky and, I don't know, Kansas for being Kentucky and Kansas. But I think there is something to be said for going to these schools and playing for that cause more than, and and the name on the Jersey meaning something even more, even greater than that of Kentucky or Kansas. That is special because of what these schools stand for historically and even in the present. So I think just if he gets, if he gets to suit up for a game, it will be considered a win. Everything's gravy on top of that. Yeah, because I don't think that team success is anything that they're going to uh, hold a standard to. They were 4-29 in 2019 and 20, and that was in Blakeney's first year as a head coach. So I don't think that it's going to be a matter of, like, expecting that he's going to expect to go in there, make the NCAA tournament, play in a game, be a 15 seed or a 16 seed and and contend against – a one seed and have maker go up and have huge numbers in this game. And it'd be this giant showcase. Like, I don't think that that's what this is going to be. The one thing I would say though, is we don't need to, we don't need to act like this is like a, a something to implicate these giant, these big schools, like, like a Kentucky or like a Duke or like a Kansas. Cause these are schools that give great opportunities to these kids yeah. to set them up to play in the NBA and make amounts of money that sets them up to put their families down the line in great wealth. I hope that maker maker after this situation, just like his brother Thon is able to go into the NBA and have a great career, make a decent amount of money, just like his brother has, even though his brother didn't play a second of college basketball. So there's always going to be, and they're always, has been different routes of doing things. And I think it's great. It's great that these kids have a different opportunity. Um, It's something that I think is, you can commend him for. And for him being the one to step out there and be vulnerable and take the risk is awesome. Yeah. I, I think, you know, the SEC has this saying, you know, they just say it just means more. And we kind of scoff at that. Even though for like for football, it's true. But it for for this this decision of him going to UCLA and just be running the mill, this will stick out in our minds for a very long time. This decision just does mean more. It and it makes the Mikey Williams. I think it was cute. It was cool that he was even giving it credence. It was cool that Josh Christopher visited Howard. I don't think Josh Christopher had any machinations of ever attending that university. He was going to a major basketball school. Mm-hmm. 
now that Maker Maker has done this, especially if they can have success, it shows these top prospects that this isn't just going to be you sacrificing your college career, your potential NBA development for moral high ground or to make a stance. It can be a viable option for you. And that Maker Maker, it's a tremendous experiment now to see how it prepares him for the NBA. And unfortunately, that puts a lot of undue pressure on him. But mm-hmm. if he can be ready for the NBA and can have success at Howard, you know, maybe they get two guys next year. Maybe Howard turns into a good basketball school that can just genuinely recruit these guys. But that's all to be seen. Just in the moment, it's a victory for college athletics. It's a victory for HBCUs. Um, and it's a victory for Maker Maker, who made way more of an impact with his college decision than he would have going to any other school in the country. Um, you know, if what happened to George Floyd obviously is abominable and intolerable, but if this is something that comes from that, that at least is a silver lining, you know, because I, I think there's absolute, I don't know again, what maker maker was thinking of doing prior to everything that happened in Minnesota and around the country and those shockwaves. But I have to think that informed this decision, right? I mean, I would think it played some sort of a role, but I think, I think the uh, one of the, if not, yeah, I think one of the things that may come of this, there's been lots of talk of like the HBCUs playing against ACC schools in these showcases. And I think that this is the type of thing where I can see TV executives at ESPN wanting to put a Howard versus Duke game on because it's maker maker versus Mike and Duke and, and such. And that would be appealing. And, and it would be appealing even if maker maker wasn't playing and it would be appealing even if it was just like North Carolina central, who's a, a team that always puts up a fight in the tournament under Lavelle Moton and, and his team, if they played North Carolina or if they played NC state, those types of matchups, especially if it's not being hosted by the ACC school, on-campus great games in a, in a great environment would be really cool for college basketball. And it's another thing, another little feather in the cap, because college basketball always needs games that stand out that aren't just mm-hmm. your run-of-the-mill Tuesday night non-conference game. Absolutely. So I think that that's a great thing. Um, one of the other things we wanted to talk about on today's show, there is actual – basketball being played right now it is the tbt with all its quirks and and funkiness the elam ending um the i think bubble that's not much of a bubble and has already had four teams have to send te- teams home because of well tests. the well the positive tests were all when the teams were at home but it seems like the little bubble they've created where no one's leaving yeah. the hotel in columbus has been successful so far other than to get to other than to go play their games at the arena. Um, I've watched a little bit of it. I know you've watched a little bit of it. We were texting back and forth on the 4th of July uh, about the Stillwater stars, Markel Brown, your favorite LeBron Nash. So, so let's go through guys. Let's do, let's do our top five or top. Let's do an abbreviated top three guys that, make you remember the good old days of your childhood growing up watching college hoops based on the TBT? Oh, I mean, Aaron Kraft is the first guy you go to, I think, because 
he, he just was at Ohio State for 67 years and <laughs> was good at Ohio State for a long time and was fun to watch. And he's the leader of a very good Ohio State alum, Carmen's crew team. They won it all last year. And just watching him run around is like, oh, that's where that guy is. And that's, that's what this tournament's about for the fan is so that's what that dude's doing now all those players we loved in college that never could really make it at least in the NBA it's fun to watch them run around and play and then now we have Joe Johnson in this and and that's amazing too yeah so you say Aaron Aaron Kraft that's a good Mm -hmm. first one um let's just do let's just do a a joint list I'm gonna nominate Mike Dom we didn't watch him all the time but just an absolute bucket getter every time that the turn we turn on the tournament in March every year, he'd be given a, a yeah. top seed of scare. That Ohio State game was insane whenever they yep. played Ohio State. Um, I'm surprised he's not in the league. I went on to my 2K save, and I made a little Mike Dom and added him to my Nugget save because I'm like, <laughs> that guy needs to be in the league. Um, last night I watched the, uh, the Golden Eagles, which is the Marquette alumni team. Golden Eagles, and, baby. And – Darius Johnson Odom. That's the name. That's one of those names that I can remember uh, in the NCAA tournament back in the Buzz Williams Marquette days. Nope. Um. Okay, I don't know which one I want to say now because I know there's another name on here that I definitely want, but I think you'll get to it. And if you don't, I'll just add it anyway. I was excited to watch LeBron Nash play because I, I love that dude at Oklahoma State. Everybody always was I, – and I love Marcus Smart. I really like that team. But I always wanted to, to root for the second guy, the sidekick. And, of course, you know, Marcus Smart was Marcus Smart. But LeBron Nash is a top 20 all-time scorer in the conference, one of the best in-game dunkers I've ever seen. I, it, it was cool watching him be the only serviceable human being in a Stillwater Stars uniform the other day and them getting their teeth kicked in in the first round. But I liked watching LeBron Nash. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were up early and I was like, oh, this is a start. Like this is, this is going to be a good week and a half of Peyton reminiscing on the good old days of LeBron Nash, uh, Markel Brown. And was, did Phil Forte suit up? I don't remember if he uh, was. I don't think Markel Brown did either, but Forte, Forte definitely wasn't on the team. Um. All right. Well, my next nominee then. I'm gonna. The money team is is one just littered with dudes that remind me of the good old days. The first one I will say, Kyle Wiltger. Yeah, was, man. was on the Kentucky national championship team in 2012. Kind of like the Devin uh, Booker of that team, like yes. the six man guy who just run around and shoot a bunch of threes. Great player who didn't get enough minutes under Calipari, but you can't really argue because the team had success. Then he goes to Gonzaga, and he becomes just a stud. Um, Not really doing too much. I think he's playing – I'm looking at his bio right now. I think he's playing overseas uh, right now, but definitely the star of the money team, in my opinion. And Wade Baldwin. Vanderbilt legend. I know he's not on the roster, but he is on the team. I read an ESPN thing about how he's playing for them. Yeah, and then the other the other members. I think the money team is just like interesting because it's it's all these guys. We got Thomas Welsh. We've got Nick Johnson. We got Bryce Dolford. Like if if there's ever a, a Pac-12 team to support, the West Coast 
best coast mentality certainly comes through on the money team. Yeah, true. Some of these teams though are, have are like just completely constituted of dudes I've never heard of. Like the team brotherly love team. Where's Shiz? It's a Philly team populated by Temple guys. Where's Shiz Alston? <laughs> it's the true robbery of this tournament. I would that if we could have gotten Shiz to be playing oh basketball God. this summer, it would have been it would have been great. It would have maybe made up for COVID, not actually, but. It would have softened the blow a little it would have, bit. It would have trimmed the deficit. Yes. Um, um, the Red Scare team's fun because it's got guys from my favorite team ever, this Dayton team, Ryan Mikesell, Trey Landers, two guys who started this year for Dayton are already playing in the TBT. You love to see it. Um, I think we, we discussed on the all-time Big East draft pod um, oh, how much – I mean, Griff, Griff – undeniably is is the largest Syracuse fan but in terms of growing up watching Syracuse and always like for some reason despite never being a giant Jim Beheim fan Jim his team Beheim's army in the TBT which it's not actually his team but that's what their name is it's the Syracuse alums has Malachi Richardson Brandon Trish and Andrew White the third which is like a three-man trio of just guys that I grew up watching. I don't know why I watched so much Syracuse basketball, but I did. And I was just – Brandon Trish was a bucket. Yeah, man. Uh, that Syracuse team, I thought I'd recognize more names. Uh, where's Trevor Cooney? Where's Michael Benajay? Uh Rakeem Christmas, where's he at? Why isn't he a part of the team? But Brandon Trish was, was a bucket. Let's not get like- it twisted. I feel like Rakeem Christmas played on previous years. I'm pretty sure he played on their team last year. I don't think he's on their team this year. Yeah. But they just won their game today against the men of Mackey. That just happened like an hour ago or so. So, um, makes sense. Carmen's crew, we mentioned Aaron Kraft. They also have uh, – Oh, Malachi Richardson's on this team. Sorry. I was just looking at the roster. Yeah, I I just mentioned that. They also have Jared Sullinger, Deshaun Thomas – uh, Lenzel Smith and William Buford. So basically, the all we lost to we lost to Kansas in the 2012 Final Four team, um, which brings back great memories. This is what this is all about for me. And then we get the quirky little Elam ending. Yeah. Um, also, quick shout out to Jared Sullinger, who is skinny now, and is like a really good coach for them. I think this could springboard a actual coaching career. Maybe he'll take over for Holtman at Ohio State someday. That would be awesome. I, I mean, although Chris Holtman is very young, very spruce, and very capable of coaching for a long time and doing it at a pretty high level. So I don't think they're in any need at the moment. Also, shout out to, uh, on that Carmen's crew team, Jeff Gibbs, who's starting power forward, but he's 6'2", and just has this old man post game, gets <laughs> offensive rebounds, and is just a nuisance. I love watching him play. Yes, I, I think Carmen's crew. It, it's definitely a simple pick because they uh, they won last year, but they're definitely who I who I believe I'm rooting for in this tournament. But one of the things I want to talk about before we get into our interview with Carson um, is I I think we should have a the feast week when we have the Maui and we have the Bahamas tournament and all that. We should have a college basketball tournament 
like preseason, uh, early season tournament that has the Elam ending. Like, why not? Just for three games? It'd be interesting. It would kind of, I think, mess with just the norms of everything because, I don't know, it could play into some team's hands who's a more defensive wear-you-down type team could be slighted by that because their guys are going to get more tired and whatnot. But it'd be interesting to see at an actual college level. My thought on the Elam ending is it's really fun and cool but I don't think it should be at any level of basketball more serious than the one it's currently at. I think it's perfect for the TBT, maybe the G League, but I don't think it should be at any higher level of basketball. There's just something so incredible to me about a buzzer-beating shot that you don't really get with the Elam ending. Its biggest flaw is that games will end on free throws. Games that are blowouts just drag out a lot of the time because the losing team knows it's over but the, the winning team's not really going full throttle anymore. Um, and you get a lot of these, like, anticlimactic endings with the Elam ending. You also get some amazing ones. I just think the, the current system is more perfect. And then you have to contextualize everything that's happened in the history of basketball. We're about to talk to Carson. I talked to him earlier this week about the Elam ending, actually. And he said to me, you know, if basketball had started with the Elam ending, I'd be fine with it. And that's where I'm at, too. It's just not what I grew up with, so I'm cool with what we got. Yeah, I I agree. It, I, I think that the most I'm willing to concede is the the idea that I just threw out there of uh, three games in mid-November. And if, if that's it, that's it. But I am also totally cool with games ending the way they do now. So it's more than okay with me. With that being said, let's send it to our interview with Carson. Joining us on the show today, one of the stars of the Fab Four freshmen from this past season, it's uh, Nerd Sesh co-host Carson Breber, um, a big NBA fan, and we are going to talk college basketball's best NBA prospects in the NBA draft for this year. It, it should be happening in late September, I think. Is that correct? Uh, I want to say it's October 16th. Okay. I feel – yeah, never mind, because it's, it's the week after the NBA finals are supposed to end mm. or whatever. But the uh, draft deadline has been pushed back, so everything is kind of on hold. But with that being said, we thought this week kind of a slower a slower week in, uh, in terms of NBA and college basketball news. Um, we wanted to talk some college basketball. So first thing first, I feel like this is a question that you ask anybody anytime you're talking about any draft, regardless of sport. But Carson, how do you feel about this year's draft? And is it the this is the boring question? Is this a weak draft? Um, I think in comparison to some of the recent drafts, it is on the weak side. You know, 2018, 2017, we had pretty loaded classes, and I think uh, especially with 2018, you could tell that coming in. But I'm not high on this class. I don't see a lot of guys with that high-end star potential who I would bet on, who I'm confident in. And obviously, there are going to be guys who are good utility players for a long time. You get that with every class. And, you know, maybe this class is above average in that respect. But at the top, guys that I would bet on being all NBA-level stars, they are definitely slim for this class. Carson, how much of that is influenced, do you think, by A, the fact that we didn't get a, an NCAA tournament? I don't know if that, from a scouting perspective, really sways mm -hmm. a lot of people. On guys like Kemba Walker, it might. But 
on the average prospect, I'm not sure how much of an impact that has. But then B, the fact that James Weissman only played a handful of games in Memphis, who is supposed mm. to be the number one pick in this class coming into the year. And then LaMelo Ball and RJ Hampton played overseas. I think that the thing with that is whenever anyone is plugged into the draft, they're not all that influenced by factors like someone being international or missing out on March Madness because you still get to see the film. And yes, James Wiseman is exceptional because we only got three collegiate games of him. But at the end of the day, for me, it's the kind of talents that you see people trying to negotiate in their mind like, ooh, this guy could be the star of this draft. Like, when I hear people say that about Obi Toppin or Wiseman, as flawed as he is, I just think that is a sign that we are reaching here. When I see, you know, LaMelo, as incredible as he is in some respects, leapfrogging to the top of this draft where he's now not a consensus number one choice, but I think he's being mocked first in the majority of drafts. Uh, that's just not as compelling to me as, you know, even the level of prospect that DeAndre Ayton or Luca was in, you know, in the 2018 class or last year, obviously, Zion and Jaw. So I don't know how much of that has played a role. Maybe you find a diamond in the rough every year in March Madness, but top-level guys, they're never really determined by postseason play. How much different do you I, – I feel like at least a small subsection of my brain, when you tell me – when you say LaMelo Ball, it goes mm. back to the 90-point high school game in which he mm. just solely cherry-picked. How much of – that subsection of my brain uh, is just completely stupid for even thinking that. And how much different is that thought from where NBA GMs view him? In, at least I, would, in your perspective. I would completely forget that because not only is he, you know, I mean, he got this reputation as the selfish, immature, you know, guy who was going to try and go out there and score 80 and take these ridiculous 40 foot shots and cherry pick. But at the end of the day, you know, he was playing varsity basketball at, 13 years old to begin with and he was on one of the most prominent teams in the country in a family of celebrities and I think that he has shown really a, a very impressive work ethic and he sold me a lot this season because I did not expect to see the genius level playmaking that we have from him the incredible touch he has on floaters with you know a six seven frame athletic ability if he's dedicates himself defensively you know he can really be something there to me the question is and this is a ball family tradition at this point the shot mechanics because he was highly inefficient from three and he doesn't fear taking them but he's flinging that thing and it's just to me it's not a consistent sustainable uh you know form and I think that we saw that but he has so many genius offensive ability at six seven with his passing touch you know obviously you have an advantage as far as vision there he could be really good the question to me is the upside as a scorer and maybe you have to bring the mentality into it which is really the key of the point that you made you know it's not about it's about you know what kind of a guy are you getting the kind of guy who wants to cherry pick for 90 points and I can't speak to that completely because I don't know the guy but what I've seen on the basketball court is pretty darn impressive is is he the type of I would say is this the type of draft where is he the number one overall pick and is this the type of draft where whoever wins the lottery impacts that their team needs impacts where who's who goes number one, or is there someone you think this like should be the automatic number one? Uh, I really like Lamelo. He would be a top three guy for me, but I I think that you know it depends on who lands the topic in the lottery because if you're Cleveland, you do not want to be drafting for another lead guard because you already have two of those, and you have a third guy who wants to be that in Kevin Porter Jr. and you have so many other glaring needs. If you're Golden State, 
that's where I don't understand mocking LaMelo at number one because the lottery is yet to occur. But right now, Golden State is, you know, filling that number one spot and people are still projecting LaMelo there. He cannot play alongside Steph Curry and Klay Thompson. We've seen, you know, I mean, the D'Angelo Russell experiment went south with a guy who should be less ball dominant, far more capable off the ball because of his skill as a cutter, because of his ability as a spot-up shooter, with which LaMelo does not have right now. So um, I... I think that fit absolutely plays a role if it's one of those two teams. You know, if Atlanta gets it, that would be interesting to see if they take Anthony Edwards to put alongside Trey. But, yeah, it really depends on how the lottery shakes out. So just going back on Anthony Edwards, because I think he's probably one of the more enigmatic prospects in this class, the defensive skill set's there. He, I think yeah. from what he showed at Georgia, you can be – it's never a sure thing. A lot of people thought that Wiggins was going to be an all-world defender, and he's in the mm-hmm. opposite of the league. Mm-hmm. But you would have to think, based on what he did and how he's built, that he's going to be a good defender. Yep. We saw a lot of ball pounding at Georgia. We saw a lot of Joe Johnson, I'm going to take this guy onto the block, I'm going to turn my mm-hmm. back to him and shoot a bad fadeaway. I had him for a game this year. I, I called the ASU-Georgia game. He's got incredibly soft touch, but I think a lot of times he takes – bad shots. And I actually would have to disagree. Georgia had a good recruiting class this past year and returned some good players from a team the year before that lost a lot of close games and actually wasn't all, all that bad. Um, I saw a lot of like selfish play out of Anthony Edwards at the detriment of this Georgia team. I don't know if that had to do with Tom Crean or him or what, but are you concerned that he is going to be too much of a ball pounder for a lot of these teams, or do you think his game in the NBA can transition more into like an off the ball elite number two guy who's going to get you buckets is going to be able to run your second unit with the ball in his hands. He's going to be a great defender and he's going to be able to attack closeouts and dunk on people all over the place. I think that the second one would be a disastrous outcome for his career. If he is running your bench unit, I don't think that he has to be a number two. I think he can be the best guy on at the very least solid teams. Like I said, I see Donovan Mitchell in him, that ability to carve out good looks from mid range to physically, you know, he can physically dominate people even more than Mitchell. He's a slightly bigger, slightly stronger version with a lot of that same burst and athleticism. And yeah, the efficiency numbers are bordering on atrocious for him from this collegiate season, 40% from the field, 29% from three. But at the end of the day, he clearly can stroke the ball. He can shoot it. And he can create his own shot. He has a tight handle for his size and athletic ability. And so uh, do I think he's a sure thing? No. Uh, Do I think he has the highest ceiling in this draft? Potentially. But I just think that you are going to get a good player out of him. And at the end of the day, he's less of a weirdo than the other top player. James Wiseman has so many glaring faults. You know, international guys like Denny, you just don't see many superstars in that mold. Or LaMelo with his inability to, you know, consistently score at a high level as far as it projects the NBA. So if I were going to bet on a guy, I would just bet on him. I agree. There are, there were flaws. There were flaws in the tape and there were flaws in how he contributed to winning. But you, you can't get seduced by a skill set with college guys or else you're going to, you know, think that Cam Reddish is the man every year or high school guys in more in Cam Reddish's case. Mentality matters and what you actually do in game situations matters. I'm just not ready to discount Anthony Edwards in that regard. Well, and given Cam Reddish rebounded and had a nice rookie year too. Um, well, if you like 36% shooter. Oh, rookie year. Yes. No, he got a lot better as the year went on. I thought you said freshman at first. Um, and, you know, maybe that, that's what we're seeing with Anthony Edwards is a guy that in the situation he was in was never going to be efficient. And in the league, in an actual, like, offense, 
mm-hmm. might be a little bit better. That's certainly mm-hmm. possible. He's talented enough to be an all-star level player. But mm-hmm. let's talk about a guy that I love mm-hmm. that I know is going to be controversial. Let's talk about Obi Toppin. I've heard a ton of different appraisals of him. I've seen him as high as the number two pick in this class, which I don't think anybody would have told you was the case coming into the year. What do you think about him? And uh, I guess this will preview a little bit of a game that we're going to play later, but where do you see him fitting in the league? If you expect him to be PJ Washington, then I think that you will get what you are betting on. But if you're expecting him to be some sort of offensive superstar, I don't see that skill set. And he has the offensive versatility that is intriguing because he has that athletic burst, obviously as an insane vertical, which makes for all sorts of exciting plays. He can score out of the post. Uh, He can shoot the three. It's not his preference. And at the end of the day, you know, you can instill the math and the efficiency of a shot to someone in their head over and over again, but you can't rewire someone's game if they think that they are a star. So I think he can adapt to be a good, you know, 15 point per game guy. Like, Like really, I could see him being in the mold of a PJ Washington, a versatile guy who if he's willing to spot up and just knock down a lot of shots can be effective. Probably not as good of a pure shooter, but has a little more of that athletic upside. But defensively, you know, he's he's athletic, but he's not a good lateral mover. Uh, he's not overwhelmingly long. He's not great on the boards. Offensively, he's not a great secondary playmaker. He doesn't read the floor all that well in that regard. So I have a lot of like, to me, I would take him towards the bottom end of the top 10. That's where I'd feel comfortable taking him. If you're taking him top five, I just think, you know, I would rather take a risk on a guy like Lamelo every day of the week than take a maybe a higher floor with with Obi. Yeah, I I got absolutely shamed by Peyton when we watched him in person uh, taking on St. Mary's this fall and in, in or this winter in Phoenix, and I said that he reminded me of the Morris twins because he was physically could overpower the college game and you just know that that's not going to be possible in the NBA. I, but I still feel like there's a part of me that thinks he has some, like obviously not even close to the same position, but he has some Malcolm Brogdon to him in the sense that you just know he's a guy who's going to be smart enough to like figure it out and play well as a rookie. And so I feel like if I was going to bet on it, I would think he would be my rookie of the year choice just because I think his, his skill set translates to the league as quickly as anyone else's should. Am I wrong for thinking that? Well, I mean, here's the thing with that. Malcolm Brogdon is rookie of the year once in every literally, you know, 60 years. Like he's probably the worst rookie of the year ever. So generally a guy who has that higher floor, you know, I mean, if Obi Toppin scores 13 points a game, which I totally think he could do, I think you're right in that respect. And also obviously he is older, he's 22. So you have that advantage coming into the draft of being more, um, you know, just more developed, more comfortable in your own skin. I just wouldn't bet on it. You know, I think it depends on situations, but I can see Anthony Edwards putting up some big numbers. I Lamelo's tough to predict. I don't know. Like I would take, Maybe you're right with the rookie of the year argument, but for me, I would take a guy like Onyeka over him. I would take a guy like internationally, probably Killian Hayes. So I, I go ahead, Peyton, you're shaking your head. I just, I think you undersell his intelligence as a player. You're right. He's not the best lateral mover. He runs kind of funny. It's honestly ridiculous when you see him run down the floor, as opposed to the closing step before he dunks on your head um, that you're like, that's the same athletic body. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, but he is an incredible, go watch the Kansas game again, an incredibly smart baseline help defender 
And at 6'9", although he is a little bit sawed off in the arms, I think that's going to be really valuable defensively. He is a smart shot taker. He, I think, is going to be able to conform his game into the – I can stand into the corner, and whenever I'm on the weak side, I can run and catch a lob, or I can do pick-and-roll stuff for you. I think he'd be a perfect fit for a team like the Rockets. I don't know how many teams are going to play like that with him. It's just hard because the four-man, the traditional power forward, has been so subjugated in today's game. But I don't know. I, I think of guys like Paul Millsap, who at that 6'9", he's not the rebounder that Millsap is. But I think he could be that level of defender, and I think he's got a little bit more of offensive upside than a guy like Millsap had. I think he, in his career, will be an all-star. I think he'll be a multiple-time all-star. It's just the problem is I don't think he's going to ever be that number one guy for a team because the he's Mills not that great with the ball in his hands. The Millsap comparison to me is tough just because Paul Millsap has found such a unique path to success. True. And the fact that he's been able to sustain it past, you know, I mean, he, you know, he was a traditional back-to-the-basket guy and – He's just an incredible bucket getter out of the post where if you're going to throw it down to him and expect to turn around at any time, you know, I, I feel pretty good about that. He is so strong and has such a great base defensively. Like people do not move him, even though he's only, I think, six seven. So that's a tough formula to emulate. I agree, though. If Obi can maximize his skill set, if he can be content, you know, I'm going to say it again, the P.J. Washington role with maybe a little bit more rim running out of the pick and roll in there because he has that verticality that P.J. doesn't. But the defense concerns me. And I know that when I brought up Onyeka, you started shaking your head, but Onyeka has that ridiculous defensive versatility and the wingspan. And at the very least, he's a powerful athlete who out of the pick and roll can do his job there and, and can clean things up down low. Not that I love Onyeka, but I just think, you know, it matters if there is a model for success for someone in the NBA. Not to discount unique players, but you never want to bet on a guy where you look at the NBA and you're like, okay, who is he in his best? And right. Yeka could be, he could be a BAM type guy. Maybe not the playmaking part, but he has similar skill set. And Obi, I don't see it. You're right about that much. I think having a mold and teams knowing how to use guys right when they get in the league is really indicative for success. I yeah. hope that Obi, and this after I say this, will transition us into talking about the guys who fit the best in certain places. But with Obi, I think that, it's just really tough because he is not going to ever be a primary ball handler. But I also think his defensive film this year doesn't really speak to what he's capable of defensively. Again, I, I just remember these games when he was playing teams like Kansas, Colorado, the good teams on the early part of their schedule, even St. Mary's, where he is on that backside, that weak side help defender, comes over, uses that athleticism to block shots, and is a real problem on defense. I think he zoomed out a lot during A-10 play because he didn't have to. He was more focused on winning National Player of the Year and getting the fancy dunks and putting up the numbers. But I do think he can be a good defender in the league. I think he has the skills to. I think he's got the eyes to, and I think he's got the mindset to. But, again, it's just about offensively. At 6'9", 220, he's not a very big rim runner as your mm -hmm. four guy. How do you – Let's transition now into talking about the best fits. Let's, let's play a game. Let's do a lightning round. I'll throw out a name. We'll start with Obi Toppin. You tell me the best fit that's supposed to be in the lottery for that guy. Let's do Obi Toppin. Mm. Gabe, go first. I need to think about this. Um, I think that he, well, in a dream world, uh, for me in terms of giving Obi success, 
the Warriors don't win the lottery. They end up a little bit lower and they trade, they draft Obi and they trade Draymond Green. So they get, they they get a piece to work around. They get a piece to strengthen the team and they put Obi into a developmental role where he basically plays a Draymond Green role to a lesser extent and then grows into it. I okay. I would never bet on anyone growing into Draymond Green. Yes, I know. I know that's like that's a, a really uh, that, dream scenario. But I think that that's the like. I think of all the places in the top ten where he would go, and the the, the franchise would be fine. Most most acceptable with him not becoming an All Star. That's the place. If the Warriors ditched Draymond for Obi, I would be pretty upset. I, okay. But if they if 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 they they in this scenario they're ditching yeah. they're ditching Draymond for Obi and other players. Yeah, I guess we can't get too deep into the hypothetical because I can't ask you who those other players are. Yeah, uh, exactly. It's you know it's really tough for me to think of somewhere where he fits seamlessly just because I worry about you know he can't park down near the rim defensively and, and swat shots. He has to get out there on the perimeter and move with guys, and that's going to be a problem anywhere. Maybe Detroit, just because I think that they kind of play, you know, they, but then I wonder how he fits alongside Christian Wood defensively because that's not great. But anywhere where he has space to work with offensively and, you know, like maybe then it's a, a Minnesota offensively, that would be awesome, I think, putting him alongside that D'Lo cat pick and roll and just having him feed off those opportunities. If it's hanging out in the dunker spot, if it's spotting up from three, he could be good there. But my concern is anywhere defensively. Yeah, and that's the tough part is what team is he going to be able to – you don't want to hide him defensively. And, I again, at his frame, 6'9", 220, I think that you can make him into a good defender. The lateral movement's not great, but he does have that bounce to mask it up because he can make recovery blocks that other guys just mm-hmm. can't make because of how high he can get. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you brought up some good teams. Minnesota, I think, would work really well, but I don't love the defensive pairing of him and Cat. Yeah as your yeah. primary rim defenders, uh, you think of the teams that are going to be in the lottery, and it's the teams that have guys that are exactly like them. The Knicks, that makes no sense. They've got six Obi Toppins. Um, the, the Hornets, you already mentioned P.J. Washington. They already have Miles Bridges. They've got a couple of these guys that are exactly like that. They don't make a lot of sense. Bulls don't need them either. They've got Wendell Bulls Carter and Laurie Markin. Wendell Carter and Laurie Markin doesn't make sense at all. He's not going to be a guy at 6'9 that can play the three for you. A team that's not in the lottery that I think could make a lot of sense is Dallas. I think as a secondary pick-and-roll guy with Luka Doncic, a guy who could stand in the corner, a guy who can, whenever a dude is able to get by Chris Dapps, come over on that help side and get a block, I think he would be a perfect fit there. Can you imagine the lob dunks from Luka to Obi Toppin? It'd be incredible. Well, to that point, Luka has made a lot less than Obi look pretty darn good. We're talking Maxi Kleba. We're talking people loving oh Dwight God. Powell, and a lot of that has to do with Luka Doncic. It's hard not to succeed offensively alongside him. How about for the second player of best fits, let's do Isaac Coro. I'm going to say Atlanta, and obviously they've already invested in two of those 3 and D mold wings in Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter, and he's – Coro's not going to dislodge Herter. He also just can't play the two. Uh, the thing for me is I'm not sold enough on Reddish as much as I like the fluidity and, you know, the shoot, like his shot looks good. It doesn't go in all that much. And the defensive upside is there. He struggled to make that adjustment. You know, Reddish did. So Okoro I have my issues with, but at the very least, you're getting a guy who is 
great defensively and you just really hope can, you know, develop into a 36% three-point shooter because he's a powerful athlete on straight line drives. He can be difficult to stop. And it's a low upside pick. And that's part of the thing about building a team around Trey Young is you don't know if he can fit alongside another guy who wants to be a 20-something point scorer, which Isaac Okoro will never uh, approach. But I do think you're getting value there and you're getting a positional need if you're going to build a good team alongside Trey Young. Okay, next one. And I'm going to do it a two-pronged, like, here's one outcome for his game, here's another. So on the A side, James Weissman, traditional center, never develops a shot. B side, that jump shot that has pretty good form comes along and he can actually step outside the paint and maybe play a little bit of four. Where do you think the two potential outcomes for him could be in those two scenarios? Well, I am intrigued by him going to New York because I don't see him being, I mean, right now the Knicks, uh, if, if there were no lottery, they'd be picking sixth. And that's kind of the range I like Wiseman to go in more, five, six. I don't think he's a top three guy, but if you're going to unlock RJ Barrett, you got to give him that pick and roll partner, that dynamic guy who teams have to be scared of. And yes, you know, they're both going to be attacking downhill for the most part. So it's not ideal spacing wise, but I just have intrigue there. And if James Wiseman becomes a good three point shooter for the second scenario, put him anywhere, put him anywhere. And that's going to work offensively. All right, let's go. We're going to stick in the, in the college game as much as possible. Um, I'll give you two point guard options, Tyrese Halliburton and the much, much beloved Cole Anthony. Tyrese Halliburton by far. Uh, he has his flaws. You know, he's not an insanely dynamic scorer, although he's really efficient this year. I don't know how uh, much of a successful volume three point shooter is going to be at the next level. I know he shot like 41% this year, but uh, his fluidity off the dribble is okay. But I like his playmaking at his size. You know, you can see over a lot of people defensively, he projects really well. He has some troubling numbers as a pick and roll ball handler this year. But Cole Anthony, for me, you know, I, I obviously you see the star level skill set with the shot creation and the athleticism and just the dogged mentality. But for me, these volume guards, if I'm going to invest in one of them, that's the most overpopulated you know, position in the NBA. Everyone has a guard that can go get a bucket if given the opportunity. But who wants a Zach Levine? And I just see so many worlds in which uh, Cole Anthony turns – or Kobe White. I just see way more outcomes like that for Cole Anthony than he's the best version of himself or worse outcomes than that. All right. I'm going to go with a guy that's a little bit off the beaten path here, a guy that's probably going to go late lottery or early into the playoff teams. But I think if they, they had played the entire year, we're having a different discussion, and that man is a man who's very near and dear to my heart, Aaron Neesmith. What do you think about him? I'm a big Neesmith guy. And one of the more confusing things that I've seen lately is Sadiq Bey uh, getting that, you know, elite spot-up shooter spot over Aaron Neesmith, where now people are mocking Sadiq Bey as like a borderline top 10 guy. For me, Neesmith gives you more fluidity, natural creation, more defensive potential, more athleticism. And at the end of the day, he shot, you know, whatever, 50% from three this year. It's he, a guy with that single ability will have a 10-year NBA career no matter what. You can be Kyle Korver, you can be J.J. Redick, and I think he can be better than those guys. So in this draft, that's 100% worth lottery. But I just remember the question was about fit. Um, and fit, I, I don't know. I think that he can fit in a lot of places just because he has that one most transferable skill set, which is shooting the ball. Maybe, maybe Chicago, but I can't do that to him because I like him. And uh, it, that's a tough spot to be. But I don't know. I think he could play almost anywhere. 
Phoenix, he would be fun. Uh, I love Macau Bridges, but, you know, never hurts to have shooters. Just – it's incredible to me that whenever Bandy brought in that recruiting class with Simisola Shitu and Darius Garland, and it's the first time they've ever got multiple top ten guys, let alone any top ten guys. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a very high probability that Aaron Neesmith is the best guy to come out of that class. I'm like still in pro? on – As a pro. Yeah. I'm still in on Garland. I think Garland has a lot of like star point guard traits where I could really see it working out, but there's totally a world because Neesmith will not fail. And I'm not trying to jinx him, but I just don't see worlds in which that happens. Yeah. I I see a lot of, if at best buddy healed with better defense, I think that's the best version of Neesmith, which could be an all-star at some point. Okay. Carson, help me out with this. Um, this is not going to be a top. This is not going to be a top guys. But give me, like, go through the rankings of these four guys. Okay. Um, Trey Jones, Nico Mannion, Cassius Winston, Devon Dotson. What I, are the four? What are the four in terms of NBA, like just career longevity? I was expecting this question. For me, my favorite by far is Nico number one. I think people have gotten way too low on him. I know his shooting percentages drop, but he's a fluid shooter. His shot looks good. He's got great touch. And to me, he's the best passer of all of them as far as like how it's going to translate to the next level. He sees the floor really well, can make every pass. The next three, I don't love any of them. Dotson, to me, the three-point shooting this year was an issue. He's obviously lightning fast, gets to the line a bunch, but I don't know what offense is going to want to build around them. And I don't know if any of the rest of these three guys are a starter. Um, Winston has to be last for me. I just think he's undersized. I don't think he's explosive enough in any way. I think his passing it got overrated by inflated assist numbers just from having the ball in his hand so much because when I look at him compared to – like, Nico Mannion has that ridiculous feel for the game. Cassius Winston, I think, has a lot of experience. I don't know if he has that. So, he'd be last. Trey Jones, Devon Dotson, I think they're both career backups. I think they can be good backups. Um, sorry, Gabe. I think I might have to go Trey. No, you know what? I'm going to go Devon Dotson. Just because I think that there's more defensive ability there. Although, they both compete on that end. It's close for me. But Nico Mannion, clear number one. Okay. All right, last one. Anthony Edwards, what's the best fit for the Bulldog? Who selfishly, I would genuinely really enjoy seeing him on the Warriors. And it's a different role from what he would do long-term because, you know, obviously he's the clear third option and he's going to have to be improve as far as his three-point percentage. I don't think it'd be hard for him to shoot 35% if it was mostly on spot-ups. But I think it'd be fun to see in Atlanta. Maybe he could change Trey Young's mentality and understand, you know, I have a star alongside me. Can't put him in Cleveland just until they get rid of Garland or Sexton. But, you know, I, I would like to see him in Golden State. Okay, before we go, I think that he's coming back to college next year. But if he doesn't, even if he does, even if he does, when his college career is over, Peyton and I have had this debate plenty of times over. Um, I think, I think, I don't want to speak for you, Carson, but I think you stand on my side of this debate. Over under 400 NBA games for Remy Martin. I think it's a good, I think that's a good spot to set the over under. I'm going to take the under because I think that we underestimate how difficult it is to play five full NBA seasons because, you know, that means he's sticking around for more than five years because he's not going to be playing. He's going to be a G League player to start with. 
to me, he's too much of a college player. He's the kind of guy who in college can dominate the ball, can take all of his crazy contested mid-range jumpers and do his flashy no-look passes and slap the floor on defense. And all that kind of stuff is great. And it gives the team energy and it's exciting. But he's a 33% career three-point shooter. He, I like his shot, but it is weird. And at his height, I don't know how easy it is to get off Oh, he does stuff that you like. I mean, his passing, uh, when he sees the floor well, can be really exciting and dynamic. He competes on defense, but he's just such a weird NBA player. Like, you can't – I'm not convinced that you can have him be a great spot-up shooter, and that's where part of his value would be, I think. So, I'm going to take the under. Just really quickly here before we go, in the thread of Remy Martin, I think we all at this point kind of assume that he's going to come back to ASU – but mm-hmm. of the multi-year college guys, the non-one-and-done guys, the guys that college basketball fans know, which one of those players outside of the lottery do you think could make an impact in the NBA? Well, he's not a four-year, you know, absolute superstar, but I love Jalen Smith, and I've loved Jalen Smith for some time. I don't understand why he hasn't shot up to be a borderline lottery guy. That's where I'd take him. When I see, like, Vernon Carey, who literally has – there's no mold of him in the modern NBA. Jalen Smith is a versatile, you know, offensively and defensively big man. He can hit spot-up jumpers. He's a great rim runner. Uh, he can defend on the perimeter well enough. He's obviously a dynamic shot blocker. I see so many skill sets for him where, yes, his game is simple, but simplicity is valued in big men these days, especially when it's not just rim running. It's rim running and shooting. So I like him a lot. He would be my bet, and he's been my, my guy for a while. Okay. All right. Thanks for coming on the show. We love talking with you, Carson. A pleasure as always, gentlemen. All right. Once again, thank you to Carson Breber, co-host of Nerd Sesh. You can listen to that with Logan Camden and him. Um, Thank you for him coming on the show again, filling in with Griff gone, helping his mom celebrate her birthday. Happy birthday to Mrs. Peters. Happy birthday, Trevor. Happy birthday to Trevor Leaf, co-host of The Moneyline. Um, definitely hope that the casino is treating him well. I'm going to check in with him, make sure that he hasn't uh, gone into debt, got the mafia coming after him or whatever the deal is there up in, up in Minnesota. But uh, with that being said, once again, you can tune in. If you're tuned into this, you can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, like, subscribe, review, all those things. We appreciate you listening. Stay safe and have a great day. Blaze Radio presents Hee Hee Chech. Everybody gotta know that we next Doesn't matter if it's Sunday or Monday You know that we flex You can never make it more obvious You checking for the heat, that's cold cold, cold. Get to the top of the top of this You can never reach these hoes In the booth, then we spin the truth We inspire the youth, then we get to the loop You do what it does, and we do what it do We turn to the max, and they got you on mute Flow so high, so you know I had to run it back Blazers apart, and we run it like a running back Gabe, I try, so you know we having fun with that Turn you into ops, so you know it ain't no coming back Now we done with that